why would a decent person like you need forgiveness? That's a question that Becky Pippert asked in one of her books, but she says, why would a decent person like you need forgiveness? Because when we talk to people, I don't know if you, just kind of the, the, the conversations that we get into and the things that I ask, what I'll hear from people is that they say that, that humans are just by nature good or okay. And then, but if you follow that up with, well, well, how's the world going? And we can acknowledge that the world's a mess, the world's broken, the world's falling. Well, how is that? How, how can you say that people are just by nature pretty decent, but the world is a mess? What's going on in us is a lot messier than we tend to acknowledge at times. So you get to think about what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus in his life was very compassionate and respectful and ate with sinners and, and so much so that people use that as a derogatory term for him. Look at this guy. He's a friend of sinners. He eats with them. This is compassionate. But he also said that all the evils come from within us and they defile us. And so one of our problems is that we have a God, God complex where we try to be God, where we uh, replace God, that we act like God and switch roles with him. Uh, we run to other gods to give us joy and meaning and purpose. And so why, why would a decent person like you need forgiveness? Because no one is as good as we like to think. That's why. We've all tried to be God rather than worship and trust God. And so I want to begin this morning, before we get to the text, of, of us thinking, how do we, how do you connect with God's forgiveness? Connect with, how do you uh, interact? How, how, does that, how does that feel to you? Meaning, how do you view your sin? How do you see yourself before God? And in that, how well do you connect with God's forgiveness? Does it feel like your sin is too much? It's, it's overwhelming God and your sin is huge and there's nothing he can do to it? Or is it so small that you don't need God? Uh, you can just apologize and apologies will suffice. That's all you need to say. But the reality or the question is, what do you do with your guilt? Because then to say, if you don't have any guilt, would be to say that I, I would say, you're dealing with it some way or another. To acknowledge that you have, no, or to say, to profess that you have no guilt in any form or fashion is, is, is to deal with it in the way of denying it, is lying about it, saying it's not there. Or to push it away, ignore it, hide it, get away from it. So as we look at this second reason in the text this morning for us to praise the Father, you'll see that we're going to get to our redemption and our forgiveness, but it's really hard to get there if you don't think you need it. It's really hard to praise the Father for what he's done for you if by function and operation and daily living and how you communicate and act with other people, you are communicating over and over again that you don't really need his redemption. You don't really need his forgiveness. And so Ephesians 1, verse 7, uh, as Stephen said, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to, to grab a Bible, open it up. So you see, you look at it, you wrestle with God speaking to you this morning. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, back up to verse 3 with me. 
Blessed is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according or on the basis of his good pleasure to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. And then verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. So, second reason, meaning, here's the argument. Not the argument. Here is the direction. This is what Paul is trying to do in you now. This is what the Spirit is trying to do in you now, is to lead you to praise the Father for three things that he's done. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing, but then he's going to outline it in three very particular things. What? Number one, he chose and predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters. Number two, this is it. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness. So why should you praise the Father with your voice? Why should you speak a good word? Why should what comes out of your mouth and out of your heart perpetually be praised to the Lord is because he's adopted you and he's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. What he's painting is this wonderful, transcendent, just magnificent picture of the Trinity's work in our eternity, in our salvation. You'll see it. Number one, verses four and six, like we saw last week, we're chosen for adoption by the Father. Secondly, this week, we're redeemed for unity by the Son. And next week, we'll see we're being sealed for inheritance by the Spirit. All to say, why are you to praise God? Because Father, Son, and Spirit are intimately involved in your salvation from start to finish. That's why. The Father chose you, initiated the plan. The Son accomplished the plan, and the Spirit has applied it to you personally, intimately. That you are new. That Jesus is not just renewing. No, he's made you new. Ephesians 2 We'll get to it later. It talks about us being dead in our sins and trespasses. That imagery is like a sinful zombie being led by the devil, walking in step with the enslaved, disobedient masses, doing whatever is right in our own eyes, all walking under the wrath of God. That's who we were. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if his cosmic grace hasn't collided with your heart, if you don't actually know him, then that is who you are, God says. But there is redemption. And if you're in Christ, you have been redeemed through his blood. Through his blood. Now, we're going to get more into redemption and forgiveness at the end. I want to go to this, and we'll come back to it, okay? So we're going to talk more about redemption and forgiveness. But what is the basis, what is the grounds of his redemption? Or to say it differently, how can he pay the price for our redemption? How can he absorb the cost of our forgiveness? It's in that prepositional phrase that you've skipped over before, and so have I, and is powerful and full of beauty for us. It is according to to the riches of his grace. 
How can he gift you with every spiritual blessing? How can he pay the cost for your redemption? How can he forgive someone like you who has a debt against him of of somewhat $10 million? It's because the wealth of his grace. It's on the basis of the lucrative excess of his grace. That's what the word is saying here. If you, if you need to think about it, you, you, you go to Jesus speaking the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, and you, you see the man who by all accounts, it would have taken him lifetimes, thousands of lifetimes to pay off his debt to this ruler. So that's why I say maybe $10 million. But the ruler forgives him this exorbitant debt. And then he turns and he chokes someone for $100 that's owed to him. This is a parable on forgiving others, but it's all rooted in God's excessive wealth of grace to us. Do you hear what I'm trying to do? I'm, I'm, I'm using hyperbolic terms because actually... There are no hyperbolic terms when it comes to speaking of the wealth of his grace. I'm trying to do all I can to show you. you know, Scrooge McDuck stuff is happening. Jesus swims in the coins of his grace, never running empty. Does that help anyone? That's what I'm trying to get across. How wealthy he is in his grace. How has he paid this? Is because he is a grace trillionaire to try to give some semblance of how wealthy he is in his grace, so much so that then the Bible can tell us in verse, uh, later on, that in the beloved one, he lavished us with his grace. Lavished. That only happens when the one who is giving has the excess of the wealth to do so, right? Lavished. His grace on us. He's paid the exorbitant cost of our sin. And his work of salvation, another prepositional phrase, has been done with all wisdom and understanding. That point there is to say this plan is brilliant. You are not smarter than God and you're not wiser than God. His thoughts are better. His plans are best. This is brilliant without holes, without problems, without any need to change or, or, or make an amendment later. Divine wisdom is behind all this strategy. His will is perfectly wise and gloriously warm. Some of you guys are really secure in his brilliant, wise plan. But you miss the reality that this is on the basis of his good pleasure, that his plan is not cold and calculating. It is warm and vibrant. It's out of his love for you. And now, at this point in time, 2,000 years ago, after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Paul can say, and now God has revealed his mysterious will. That's the next section. 
he made known to us. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Again, according to his good pleasure, on the basis of his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now, this term mystery may not be a big deal for you, big deal for the ancient world. Uh, it's a term widely used. So Artemis and the other gods had mystery rites or uh, mystery rituals or mystery incantations that they would do to uh, get into the cult, whatever it was, the Artemis cult, any other god. And many of the Christians, new Christians in Ephesus, had most likely experienced ritual initiation into one or more of these cults in the past. And they're called mysteries because the, the followers were sworn to secrecy about what they experience. So, so whatever the, the hazing or the incantations or rituals to get into the cult, they were secret. You wouldn't tell anybody because you did this thing. It's a mystery. You get into it. Then you don't tell anyone about it. Uh, kind of like a mason, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Anyone? No? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Just sworn to secrecy, right? But Paul picks up the word mystery to pique their interest and to tell them the truth. Not that there's a few things in the Christian life that you have to know about that are secret and you're going to do to get into the cult. No, the mystery is this. God can only reveal his mystery through revelation and he's revealed himself particularly in his son, the God-man. He must reveal his will, and he has. He has revealed his mysterious will, and what is it? To bring, that's the end. You see the purpose? To bring everything together in Christ. That's the purpose. All of this, his plan, his wisdom, his understanding, his, his love, all to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him bring everything together in Christ. I think this is gloriously freeing because even when we're talking about redemption, even when we're talking about salvation, the focal point is not you, but Christ. And so even when we're talking about it, the goal is to see the beauty of what Jesus has done for you and then to turn back towards him and to lift up your hands in praise of this is what he has done for me. This is my savior. I don't have a God complex. God complex. I don't need to drift into a God complex because there's one Messiah and I can trust him alone. But that's where we're at. That this leads in praise, adoration. Why? Because there is one mediator between God and man, and he is Christ Jesus, and he's bringing together everything, all of creation, both heavenly principalities and every person will bow and submit to the righteous and all-powerful reign of the anointed King Jesus. And again, this is all on his good pleasure, on the basis of his good pleasure. He's not a miser. 
He's generous. God is not a miser. He's generous, buoyant, joyful father. Redeeming us to be united in Jesus. Now, unity is, is wonderful, right? But there's a lot of things that we can find unity in. Unity is great, but unity in Christ is the point and the real joy. That we're redeemed, forgiven, adopted, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Go back to verse 7. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So clearly, again, the point that, that the text is making, that the Spirit is leading us to, is to praise the Father this morning because he's joyfully redeemed us. He generously forgave us in Christ. That is the point. That is how we are to respond. This is what the text is leading us to. But let's go again to think about redemption. Think about redeem. I've, I've thought about that. I don't know much of redeeming things other than coupons in your just kind of normal day-to-day life. But when they heard the word redeem, uh, there's this prevalence of slavery happening in the Roman world. And so it was common to hear about redemption. It was common for someone to pay the price to secure the freedom for a slave. And so now that's normal. Like they, they've heard of it. But also... If you are a Jewish person this time, you, you can recollect and, and remember redemption in your people's history, particularly the story of Exodus, which is the prototype of redemption. God raises up Moses as a redeemer. And so we talk about redemption. What redemption means is liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom. That's what we mean by re- Slave or enslaved, but then liberated because someone paid the ransom price. This is what it, what it is in Old Testament, Exodus 6. This is what's happening here in the story. God says, therefore, tell the Israelites, he's speaking to Moses. Tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So, so this is, we're here about redemption. We should go back to Exodus. See what happened? What did God do? What is he speaking of? And then we begin to understand what the New Testament is explaining about Jesus. First off, Romans 3. Romans says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all. Why does a decent person like you need to be forgiven? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Before you get to Romans, what I said earlier, Jesus said in Mark 10, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. His sacrifice is the ransom. First Timothy, for there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Jesus's sacrifice, the New Testament is telling us, was the payment to remove our sins and the father was satisfied by Jesus's ransom. By Jesus' sacrifice, that payment satisfied the Father's requirements for our debt, our wrath, our punishment that we deserve. And you're like, well, do I really have that much debt? Jesus taught us to call our sins debts. By refusing to obey and enjoy God, we create debt and earn punishment. Like I said with that, that parable, the guilt of our sins before God is so great that Jesus compared to a financial debt that would take thousands of lifetimes to pay off. Christ must pay the debt to release his people. His sacrifice is the ransom. Okay? Now let's drill into this. I want you to see not the, just the statement or the reality that you are redeemed, but let us revel in what we've been redeemed from and what we've been redeemed to. We can be very good about this is where we were and we're no longer there, but let's also see clearly what he's redeemed us to. So this is what it means for redemption. Can, can you just ask the Spirit, right now to let this sink into your soul that you'd believe this and receive this Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law to live transformed lives by the power of God the Holy Spirit that's what happened you were under the curse of the law you deserve all the curses of Deuteronomy 28 for not obeying and not loving and not worshiping God. Galatians 3.13 said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's what you've been redeemed from. That's what you've been redeemed to. Everything that I say here and everything I read here is all to lead you to praise the Father for what he's done for you in Christ. Number two, Jesus has redeemed us from Satan and demons to a new life made possible by forgiveness of all our sins. Colossians says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So 
no longer under the power of the enemy, no under the sway, no, under, no longer a nature of wrath, but redeemed from Satan demons to a new life. Number three, Jesus redeemed us from our sinful flesh to live a new life of freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may be no longer, we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, you're struggling with your sin, struggling with temptation, struggling with saying yes to sinful desires. You too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. That's what he's redeemed you from. That's what he's redeemed you to, but we're not done. Number four, Jesus has redeemed us from being dead to God and alive to sin to being dead to sin and alive to God. That's Galatians 6. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. In him. That imagery provokes imagery of the ark and the flood. Are, are you in the ark? Are you outside of the ark? In the ark, in Christ, is freedom and security and joy and a life and eternity of praising the one who loves you and knows you. Outside the ark, is further anguish, brokenness, God complexes, and us deforming our souls into what we want and the Lord giving it to us, giving us over to our desires. But you, in Christ, have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of your sins. The issue is, even when we know this and we live this, and this is our reality, we still try to deliver ourselves, pay the price of redemption ourselves, earn forgiveness ourselves. Like we can't do these things, but we try. We try. You're a Christian now, and now you sin, and you do these things, try to pay for it try to earn forgiveness. But the truth is in Christ, you are redeemed and forgiven. And that won't change today or tomorrow. What needs to change, if anything needs to change, is for us to see ourselves as redeemed and to live in our new identity as redeemed. That we wouldn't drift it, just like last week. 
You can be a son and daughter, but then drift into an orphan mentality. You can have the righteousness of Christ applied to you, but drift into a life of trying to earn your way to God by your self-righteousness. And you can also be redeemed, forgiven, but drift into a life of trying to pay for your sin, try to earn forgiveness from him instead of believing and receiving what he's already given you in Christ, you're forgiven. So this is to rejoice and worship in our God and Father who has adopted us and redeemed and forgiven us. And so I want to finish with how well do you connect with God's forgiveness uh, to your real life? And what I've seen over the years is, is a few ways of how we can respond to our sin, deal with our sin as Christians that make no sense of the reality that you're redeemed. That does not compute. If you're redeemed, you're forgiven. This isn't how we should deal with our sin. This isn't the tools we've been given to deal with our sin. And it's in these things that we operate and we do that really cut the feet out from underneath us from praising him. Because we, you'll see, minimize and minimize and minimize and minimize. Why and exult in something that you make really small? Why rejoice in something that you make not that big of a deal? Why hype something that by your life you're perpetually making smaller and less of a big deal in your life? To minimize Christ's redemption is to minimize the praise from your lips of Christ's redemption. Are you with me? So this is of utmost importance. How you think about your sin, how you deal with your sin on a daily basis will affect your praise of our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, how can we deal with our sin in, a, in just a, a wrong way? Number one, we minimize our sin, sin minimizers. Blind to the reality of our worst. We say things like, our sin's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Our sin is just between us, we say, so it didn't really hurt anybody, so we justify it. Or we justify it because what others have done to us, or maybe it initiated, they initiated something, conflict, problems, they sinned against us, and now we're sinning in response to them. We're saying, it's okay, because look what they did. Anything where like your, your knee-jerk reaction is to point some other direction, minimizing. That person, that situation, this little instance, all that. But here's the problem. Small sin minimizes Christ's redemption, Christ's forgiveness, which I believe clearly minimizes your right praise of him. So you check with me, all cards on the table, I'm trying to get you to exult in and adore the Father more and more. Why? Because that's what Paul's doing. That's his whole point. Number two, sin atoners. Those of us who try to work off our sin. So we say, I'll pray harder. I'll go to church more. I'll do redemption groups. I'll serve anywhere. All these things, whatever it is. I'll do these things. I'll read the, I, did, I haven't read the Bible in a while. I'll read three books of the Bible today. I've got to. Like, this is it. I'm going to pay for it. And, and then tomorrow we'll be on good terms. Right, God? We're trying to pay off our sin. problem there is self-atoning minimizes Christ's redemption, his forgiveness. Number three, how about this? 
Any unforgivable sinners? Like your sin is just too big, too massive, overwhelming. You're too bad. You've hurt too many people. You can't live with what you've done. You can't forgive yourself. That, that's us judging our sin. That's us telling the Father what should happen with our sin, what should be done with it. That's us telling, we can't forgive ourselves, so you've forgiven us, but, but what we really need beyond you forgiving us is us forgiving us. Rather, no, you've forgiven us, and I will receive your forgiveness. For unforgiving victims, the sin against me is too great. Now, this is tough because this is real, a gamut, uh, probably the spectrum of suffering. This could be maybe your spouse sinned against you yesterday. And this also, some of you are thinking, you know, that, that person that has sinned against you in a pattern for years. But here's the reality. The sin against you isn't too great. But I'll just say, this is how we think about it. We think they deserve to suffer. The hurt too bad is too bad to forgive. We conflate forgiveness with forgetting, and we know that's not real, so we say we don't forgive because we can't forget. But you can forgive and still remember and still choose to hold on to forgiveness. Things will still pop up when you're not even thinking about it. And the question will not be, how do I get those things on my mind? The question will be, will I continue to commit to forgive this person even when these things pop up? Even when that bitterness maybe pop up, or maybe they do something again, it makes me think about all the stuff they did in the past. Or to forgive is to condone. That's also not true. Forgiveness is costly. For the father, it cost him the lifeblood of his son. For the Israelites, it cost them hundreds of thousands of lambs. It's costly. It's costly. It, it, it seems impossible at times to forgive people that have seriously wounded you. But in context, you've been forgiven somewhat of $10 million debt against the Father. Because of the excess of his wealth of grace to you in Christ, then you have the resources, the wealth, the grace to then extend that to the person who owes you roughly $100. Refusing to forgive, again, minimizes Christ's redemption, his forgiveness. Scotty Smith said this, and I think I'll just want us to stay here, maybe end here. We will never regret remembering what Jesus has done for us a hundred times more distinctly than how people have failed and hurt us. A hundred times. Never regret. That's what we're doing right now. Remembering what Christ has done for us. And so I'll ask you this. In your suffering, maybe in your wounds, maybe in getting sinned against, who do you need to forgive? And then how will you not minimize Christ's redemption 
but rather exult in and praise the Father. Instead of minimizing, instead of atoning it and saying it's that big of a deal to say, oh, it's overwhelming and too much for the Lord. No, how will I not minimize my sin or the sin done against me and rather see it for what it is and see what Christ has done for you and then praise him. Praise him. We're about to sing Jesus, thank you. Why? Praise the Father because he's joyfully redeemed us and generously forgiven us in Christ. That's why. Our life is a life of gratitude. We'll sing one song this morning, but that's our life, a life of praise and gratitude because we praise him for what he's done and what he's done. He's chosen us, adopted us, in love, set us to be holy and blameless before him, and he's redeemed us and forgiven us all on the basis of his good pleasure, his warm, joyful pleasure in, re- in, in receiving you, meaning in taking you, paying the cost for your redemption, and then pulling you into his family, saying, you're mine forever, forgiven, redeemed, Loved. And what do we say? We praise you. You're good. You're wonderful. You're wise. You're loving. You're, you're powerful. You know everything. We praise him. We thank him. We rejoice in him. Believing he's forgiven us and also ready and willing to forgive those that sin against us. That's who we are as a people. That's what he's doing us. And to be all real clear, that's what he has done for us in Christ. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. And if you're not, cry out to him now. There's no mystery little thing that we're going to tell you about later that you need to do to to, to know Jesus. We need to know Jesus as he gave his life for you and died to pay the cost of your sin, to pay the penalty that you deserved, and to forgive you and wash you clean of everything you have and you will do wrong. Praise the Father. Father, we do. We praise you. We praise you for your good to us. You are gracious to us. You are wealthy beyond what we can imagine. Wealthy in your riches of grace. And you've lavished and showered us with your wealth, graced us. Lord, I pray that we would shower you with praises. That we'd lift up our hands and our voices and look the face of Christ who is our all in all who is going to bring everything together in the heavens and the earth and as one day we're right now we're praising you Lord there will be a day when everyone will acknowledge your sovereignty and your beauty and everything will be united under your loving rule and care. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.